You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. first time in screen history, a special interval will be provided during the running of this picture for refunding your admission. If you're unable to stand the almost unbearable suspense, the almost paralyzing shock of homicidal... Homicide is your hobby. Uh, may I recommend a surgical knife for a nice, clean, quiet murder? I'm William Castle, and uh, uh, this wheelchair is just to rest my tired nerves after producing a picture like this one. We are so sure you will find it such a shocking and startling experience that we are offering a money-back guarantee when you come to see Homicidal. At the height of the suspense, there will be a fright break, an interval during which you can quiet your nerves. If you are too frightened to see the end of the picture, your full admission price will be refunded. Time to go downstairs now. Got a date to carve a corpse. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. You know, psychos come in all kinds of packages. Also back with us this week is our good friend, Mr. Jeffrey Schwartz. Greetings, my homicidal friends. This week we are looking at the 1961 film from William Castle, Homicidal. It's the story of a murderous woman who has a score to settle with those who threaten the love of her life. Well, Kind of. Let's just put it out there right now that we're going to get into spoilers on this one big time. If you haven't seen Homicidal, we're going to encourage you to go out and see it right now. It's available as like a five-movie combo for 12 bucks over on Amazon. It's available other means as well, I'm sure. So go ahead and watch it, then come back, and we'll still be here. If you're still with us, then you know that Homicidal is actually the story of a woman, Emily, who was treated as a man most of her life and is killing anyone who might say different from the doctor that delivered her to the sadistic nanny who raised her to her sister, Miriam. Miriam Webster. I could not stop laughing every time they said Miriam Webster. Anyway, 
Jeffrey, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Homicidal and what did you think? Well, I used to run our campus film series at uh, the State University of at Purchase, State University of New York at Purchase. And we, so we used to rent these 16-millimeter films, and this was before any of these William Castle movies were available on video. So the, the only way to see them was to get the prints. So we, we got uh, The Tingler and 13 Ghosts and Homicidal, and I, I believe that was the first time that I ever saw Homicidal was uh, on the big screen uh, on 16-millimeter. And we also got a print of, of William Castle promoting Homicidal at the, in, in Youngstown, Ohio, at a theater where he was interviewing uh, terrified patrons after they had just uh, emerged from seeing the movie. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, were you holding his hands throughout the picture? I was holding him back. He was running out. <laughs> <laughs> Did you uh, guess the surprise ending? I had some ideas about it, but it was, I wasn't sure. How about you? No, I didn't have any idea of the way this picture ended. What was the most delightful piece of mayhem in the entire picture? Oh, I don't know. I guess the ending sure built up the whole suspense. Will you tell your friends the ending of this picture? Oh, no. Never. No, I'll let them suffer through it. Mr. Castle, I'd like to congratulate you on a fell fine piece of production. I think uh, Alfred Hitchcock is going to have to go a long way to try and top something like this. Well, thank you very much. That's very nice of you to say. That's kind of where my William Castle obsession began, is, is back in college. Well, I had seen sort of all of the other films that Jeffrey mentions, except for this one. This one, I guess, kind of slipped under the radar for me. I mean, the other ones, like The Tingler and all of that, and 13 Ghosts are all, I guess, maybe the more well-known ones, because there's a bigger gimmick involved. This one, I think, doesn't have quite the gimmick, and it is very connected to another film that came out, uh, I think, just before it, although it has its own twist in how it's done, and of course, I think we'll be talking about that. Now, Rob, did you know, watching this, because I, years ago, when Spine Tingler, The William Castle Story, a.k.a. Jeff's documentary, when that came out, I found out what the twist of this movie was. Did you know, going in, what the twist was? No. I had absolutely no idea, because it was the first time I had seen it, and I just went in cold. And I have to say that the ending uh, was quite a twist for me. So I was like, wow, uh, didn't see that coming. Although uh, when I put it together in my head, I go, oh, okay. There's elements all throughout it that, that build to get you there. When you saw Warren, the character of Warren, did mm-hmm. there anything strike you as strange about him? Or did you just sort of buy it that he was a male character? Well, when I saw it, I thought, well, he's a bit effeminate. I, I thought maybe that, uh, and, and we can get into sort of the, um, you know, uh, the gay aspects or you know the, the the obvious trans aspects in here. I just thought, well, he's just fair-looking guy. You know what I mean? Like he just seemed like kind of that '50s stereotype of sort of the of the gay character who isn't, it isn't really expressed that he is gay. It's just sort of a given that the audience knows. Which kind of throws some of the stuff about him and his wedding into some doubt as well, because it's like he's, there's that relationship between him and Emily. And at one point you find out that they're married and it's like, Oh, that's kind of a shocker. And you're thinking that's kind of a shocker for one reason when it's actually another reason. When I watched this with my wife yesterday, she had never seen the film and she didn't know the the twist either. And she was just like, man, that Warren is a real creepy guy. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't know if it was just because his voice was so 
different, you know, the way that they overdubbed all of Warren's lines, or if it was his look, or what was going on, but she just did not like Warren when he was on screen, which I found very amusing. And of course, I didn't tell her the twist, so I'm just sitting there, like, basically watching the movie and watching her at the same time. He's wearing these really strange false teeth also. And then that was the uh, the other thing that is sort of off about him. It's the voice, which is obviously dubbed, and it's those false teeth. And uh, he's, every time he comes on screen, you just can't quite put your finger on what's going on with him. Warren, what are you doing here? I was just driving up to Helga's. I thought I'd stop by and see Miriam first. What happened? Who made the mess in the shop? I said I'd like to know. And he isn't in the movie for a long time. Like, they talk about Warren quite a bit. And it's good that they don't really reveal him for a while, because we really start off with this whole other mystery thing that's going on. And I love the way that this film begins, where we have Emily going through the town, and she goes up to this window and looks at these wedding bands, and she goes into this hotel and negotiates for a hotel price, which is interesting to me that, you know, it's like, well, $3, is that okay? Well, what's the nicer hotel? Oh, that's, what, seven fifty for the suite or whatever? And it's like, oh my god, <laughs> these prices are amazing. <laughs> and she is making these moves big time on this bellboy and offers to pay him $2,000 to marry her uh, like the night of the September 6th and it's now September 5th and they make this big deal about the day and they make a big deal because before we even get to that there's a little prologue which I don't know about you Rob but as I was watching the prologue for some reason I was reminded of Deep Red even though we didn't have the shot of the feet and everything Mm -hmm. but it just seemed like this prologue is really going to set up a whole lot of things and we're not really going to know what's going on until much later in the film. Oh yeah the the prologue's interesting because there's there's actually sort of like two parts to it. There's the thing with the kids playing and the whole doll thing that's really kind of creepy. And you're like, okay. And that takes a while to finally pay off. You really have to remember that. But I think he does a good enough job sort of searing that into your head so that when it comes up later, you're like, ah, okay. And then there's the whole thing with, with Castle. And you don't know exactly what he's doing. It just looks like he's pulling thread or whatever. And then you find that he's basically doing the old sort of like uh, wall hanging sampler thing that you know people would have in their homes and that's the title of the of the film so i thought that was interesting way to integrate himself in that way and sort of i guess what hitchcock would do with his little cameos but this is a much more direct thing and it almost kind of felt like like an intro to a tv show more than what you normally see with a film well, he was definitely inspired by, by Hitchcock. I mean, Hitchcock was, was well on his way to being a, a, a personality that people knew as a director. And Hitchcock, and, or Castle and Hitchcock, Castle had a, a kind of a jealousy of Hitchcock and admire, admiration slash jealousy of, of Hitchcock's career and uh, was certainly inspired by his personal appearances. And he started, Castle started putting himself in the movie uh, after Hitchcock did. But then we can talk about later that, you know, maybe Hitchcock started taking some cues from Castle after a while. So we have this great intro with her wanting to get married, and that's this whole mystery thing, because I'm just like, what is going on? And the way that it's set up, I kind of knew that she was after that one particular justice of the peace who was going to do the ceremony. But I did not expect that she pulls out a knife in the middle of this thing and just starts stabbing this guy. I was completely blown away by the violence of this murder and just how everybody is there screaming and not knowing what the hell to do. And she gets away scot-free. 
It's shocking. That's actually one of the most violent scenes I, I had seen in a movie at that period. You know, I mean, Psycho is famous for sort of, uh, you think you see the knife going in in the shower scene, but in this one, you actually do see the knife going in to the justice of the peace, and there's blood everywhere, and people are screaming. I mean, I can only imagine, audiences were just not used to this kind of thing, this level of mayhem, and I would imagine that it just produced uh, chaos in the audience when it was first shown. One of the things about the tone in here, it really kind of felt to me like a um, Tales from the Crypt kind of comic book. It had that same kind of, I don't know, like look or idea or feeling like of reading those those Tales from the Crypt, those EC comics from like the late 1950s. It, it, uh, it, it almost feels like it lives in that same kind of universe, and this could have actually been one of those from that comic book series in a way. Some of the lighting in this section is a little flat to me, but even then... There's some really good use of foreground, midground, uh, background here. Like especially when we have the bellboy in the room with her. Like he's gone out to get some ice and he comes back after an indeterminate time, and she's in the bathroom changing. And we get her from the back all the way in the background, and he's in the foreground with this ice bucket. And I, I, I thought that that was really well shot. There was just a, a nice. Um, you know, look to that, and then also we kind of get echoes of that later on in the film with with uh, I think it's Warren changing, and we just see him from the back. So that's kind of like our, our tell there that there's more of a connection between those two characters. Yeah, you, I agree with you on the sort of flatness of the lighting. My friend George Kuchar used to call William Castle's lighting bar mitzvah lighting. It would basically be just like one light blasted on people. But uh, but you know, he did start in in film noir, and he did have a um, he, although at this point he was kind of cranking these films out as quickly as he possibly could he did have a really strong visual sense and he knew how to tell a story visually i mean he had worked with orson wells and lady from shanghai so you know this the movie has these really interesting uh, visual touches well i think we're going to go 180 degrees away from that flatness when we get to that end scene when we have miriam in that house and just the lights and the shadows in there are almost characters just the way that they're moving around and we don't necessarily know you know what's a shadow of a person what's a shadow from an object and it's just it's kind of crazy as far as the thickness of the shadows and how how she interacts with them as she moves through that room so it's nice that we kind of start off flat and we kind of build up and build up the same way that the tension of the film is going to build from the beginning to the end and we're left hanging there with this murder mystery and we don't necessarily know why she went after this guy and how crazy is she and her coming back into you know her regular life and that that's a great escape scene too her switching vehicles and being chased by well she thinks she's being chased by the police and it ends up that the police are actually pulling someone else over really nice and of course that again to me was a, a big echo to psycho as well as far as her driving with that police siren and that music going over the whole top unfortunately the score wasn't necessarily as driving as the bernard herman score from psycho but it was an effective score nonetheless yeah, I love the idea that the the icy blonde in this movie is actually the killer rather than the rather than the victim. Just one of many many uh, nods to Psycho that uh, are certainly intentional. So we go back into her life and then just trying to figure out what's going on with her, and we're pretty quickly introduced to this character Helga, 
who what she got like a doorknob or something that she's knocking on her her wheelchair with yeah and i get when i saw this character i laughed because it reminded me of a guy that we had as a guest on the show in the past year who was if you go back and you listen to the full interview with mark margolis who played Hector Salamanca on Breaking Bad. I was almost ah. reminded of that character he had who, after he has the stroke, he just rings the bell that he has attached to his wheelchair. And as he gets more and more angry, he just rings the bell more and more. And instead of that, she's got this half of, you know, this doorknob and she just bangs it on the on the uh, the, the, the handle there. Yeah. I always wondered about that actress. I mean, she seems like she has she has quite a presence. I don't know that much about her, but she was a working actor for quite some time. And I always wondered what her what her voice is, what her speaking voice was like. I bet she was a formidable presence uh, in on stage. I have to ask you, Jeffrey, was she the same woman who played that kind of, oh, I don't even know what you would call her, but like the ghost or specter or something like the, the, the woman that's kind of wheeled in, oh God, is that 13 Ghosts or House, house on Haunted Hill, I think it is. Yeah, I know that, that that's like the housekeeper in uh, the House on Haunted Hill. Uh, no, that's not the same actress. I don't, I don't know who this woman is. But um, you know, there's also the mute in the Tingler. So I think the the writer Rob White might have had a, a fascination with um, with these kinds of characters. This is also the first place when uh, Emily goes in and reveals to Helga that she killed this guy, and she is just so happy that she killed this guy. This is the first instance where we get a fade to black, and I'm just like. Okay, what the hell just happened? Like, am I watching the TV cut of this <laughs> movie or something? And was he doing fades to black between acts here? I'm, I was trying to figure out exactly where these fades were coming. I don't know. Maybe he was trying to make it easier to sell to TV, to cut to a commercial. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. After a horrific and bloody murder where the guy's just stabbed repeatedly in the gut. Sure. <laughs> That kind of threw me off, but then that really does kind of set up, okay, here's Act 2, now we're in this small California town, and we have this whole family drama going on. We have all this stuff with Miriam coming in, and we've got Emily, who's really kind of... Uh, Emily is an interloper in this instance, because we have... Uh, the brother, Warren, who we have yet to see, who seems to be like this sainted son, the way that they talk about Warren, both Emily and Miriam are talking about Warren like he is just like God's gift. And we hear about him so much, and Emily is just there taking care of Helga, and eventually she talks Miriam into watching Helga for a while, and then she takes off and goes off God knows where, at least to Miriam, that's how it appears. And there's this whole thing where she goes in and just trashes, Emily trashes Miriam's flower shop. Emily has been making all these kind of snide remarks about uh, how Warren paid for the first flower shop and how if she wants to open up another one, of course Warren's going to have to pay for that one. So it, it's nice to realize later on after the twist is revealed that this is actually you know Warren's inner monologue coming out and, <laughs> and kind of abusing his sister because he's kind of tired of the way that she's been using him. That's quite a, a tour de force uh, scene where she's trashing the flower shop. Um, I mean, you. I, I just wonder if the audience has then ever thought about the fact that she, that Emily, that uh, that uh, Emily and Warren are never in the same shot together, never in the same scene together. And I just, uh, I wonder how uh, an, an audience unfamiliar with this, these kinds of uh, stories would would have reacted to that. Um, it, to me, it's pretty obvious they're the same person. You know, when I saw it for the first time, I was um, 
I was uh, not surprised at the big shock ending. I was, but then again, I guess maybe I wasn't watching close enough. It's one of those things that I think it it doesn't seem to be otherworldly, this film. It doesn't seem that that could even play in. And maybe it's also a built-in bias. I mean, if I was watching this in 61 when it came out, maybe I could have picked up on it easier. But there's almost like this built-in bias for me that it's that period and everything seems so nice and normal. And of course there's going to be a simple explanation for this. It's not going to be something like that. It just (laughs) seems like a step, a step further than what I would expect. And 1961, for some reason, I, I don't know why. It's radical. I mean, it certainly is radical for that time. The, the big reveal that, uh, that uh, I know we're not uh, at that point in the plot yet, but when it's revealed that Emily and, and Warren are the same person, that that's a. I don't remember ever seeing anything like that in any movie up to that point, except Psycho. Obviously, was the influence, but this even goes even further. I mean, this is like um, a, a girl re- being raised as a boy, and that. Uh, had you ever seen anything like that in any movie up to that point? Well, I mean, the only thing I can think of in sort of literature comparisons would have been self-selected, meaning like Twelfth Night or something. But I don't really remember any film to that point where someone put on that kind of disguise in that way. I mean, unless wasn't there a, wasn't there a Dietrich film where she paraded as a man or there was some sort of ambiguity? I can't remember like something in the thirties, maybe there, yeah, there were, there were uh, plenty of stories and films about um, one gender masquerading as the other. But in this case, it's, um, it's a, more of a transgender issue, you know, that, or at least the idea that um, one gender is being forced to be raised as another gender and behave that way, and sort of that creates this sort of split personality. That's that's something that I don't remember ever seeing before. But yeah, I, there had been films. There was uh, Christopher Strong and uh, all these, uh, all the way up to Yentl, you know, one gender posing as the other. But this is something a lot weirder and more radical. And I was going to ask on that with with the end reveal and the way that the the trans issue is handled, do you think that it's handled, I guess, maybe in a respectful way that we come to understand that this person is damaged because those outside of them have treated them poorly? Or does it seem to come from, well, they're trans, so therefore they're a crazy killer? Well, it's, it's made clear in the movie that this situation was created through the father's hatred of women, right? That he couldn't accept the fact that he had a daughter so he, because he hated women, so he raised Warren as, or Emily as boy. It doesn't, I don't think it's really, I don't think the filmmakers are really thinking about it being a trans issue. That word wasn't even used then, really. Um, transsexual, yes. Transgender, definitely not. So I, I think that all of the, the sort of trans issues that we're talking about are more of a looking back on, on it. Although there are references to the most famous uh, transgender person at that time, Christine Jorgensen, when they make these references to going back to Denmark, which is where Emily supposedly met Warren in Denmark. Everyone at the time, I think, knew what that meant, because that's where Christine Jorgensen got her her operation, her sex change operation, which was, and that was the first time that that issue was ever really talked about. That was about 10 years before this. Um, So it was certainly in the culture. And Christine Jorgensen was, was still very famous uh, in the early '60s, when Homicidal was made, she was um, she was doing night, the nightclub act, I think, at the time. 
you know, the issues were being talked about, but in terms of it, whether it's a judgment on uh, transgender people that, uh, you know, trans people are crazy killers, I, I don't know that that much thought really, really went into it. Yeah, because I was looking at it through the lens of when we had discussed before with you, like celluloid closet things, where there were certain aspects of how trans or gay characters were portrayed, and then if they were murderous, did it did it flow from the fact that they happen to be gay, or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, when I think of people who are forced into this situation, I'm thinking of like Henry Porter, a serial killer who was forced to wear dresses, or the uh, young man from Sleepaway Camp. Those, to me, are much more modern, obviously, uh, ideas of like the crazy trans killer but again it's one of those like are they crazy because they're trans or are they crazy period and then they happen to to exhibit these other um gender roles so i guess it's kind of getting into this gray area because we've seen people who were killers just because they were gay in some of these earlier films but not necessarily stepping into the trans arena well in this case he's 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 not randomly killing people right isn't he killing people to prevent anyone from finding out he's only killing the people who knew the secret so he's right. killing helga because she was around and she was the one who delivered him so she knew so helga knew that he was uh really a girl and the justice of the peace knew and miriam didn't know i was a little unclear why he was trying to kill miriam well if he killed miriam then he got the entire inheritance so really he, he really he's being motivated by money more than anything yeah he's a greedy bastard i mean helga she deserved a lot of punishment as well because of that whip that we see where Warren kind of offhandedly is like, oh, I learned how to count by this whip being applied to my back. And I was like, holy shit, that's pretty fucking intense. But he's just like, la la la, you know, and it's like, wow, okay, yeah, Helga really deserves shit now. And Helga was following the orders of the father. I mean, it's it's a a really interesting dynamic, and I I was watching Helga thinking about what she would have been like before pre-stroke and that kind of sadomasochistic relationship that uh, she must have had with with Warren, you know, beating him up all the time. But I also think that giving her that name adds this level into our head of the the abusive German, you know, (laughs) stereotype that we see in other places. Yeah, we're only 14 years out from, you know, VE Day at this particular point. So it's like, yeah, okay, I'm sure that the Germans still weren't necessarily our friends. Was Helga supposed to be from Denmark, too? Cause she was just, That's what it sounded yeah, like. It's all about Denmark. And, you know, that town where they filmed the movie, Solvang, that's a t- I've been there. That's a town uh, about an hour out of L.A. that is like a Danish town. And uh, all the all those buildings that you see, those like quaint little buildings, like I mean, that's a that's a real. They're all still there. So I, I, I just I'm just fascinated to know how much of the Christine Jorgensen story was an influence on Rob White, who wrote this script, and particularly the use of uh, of Denmark as a story point. And White had worked with Castle quite a few times to this. He point. wrote all the movies. Yeah, he wrote. He's, they started working together on Macabre. And then he he kept they kept working together and homicidal was the last one that they worked on together. I think they their relationship kind of soured at some point. I think Rob White felt he wasn't getting um, he was getting short shrift as a contributor to the films. And then I, I believe after this they, they they stopped working together. I mean after this one was uh, uh, Mr. Sardonicus and Straightjacket and, and he didn't write those movies. 
Mr. Sardonicus was the same damn year. I mean, Castle must have been working like a fiend. Oh yeah, he was actually, and the, he was. This was the sort of the peak of his uh, of his notoriety as a director, producer, showman, and you know, all of the they all had gimmicks, and this was like right in the middle of that that his gimmick heyday. And this one had a great gimmick, which we can, well, I'm sure we'll talk about. I mean, yeah, looking at Castle's filmography and seeing two movies a year, you know, like 13 Ghosts in 1960 was one film, but then things like The Tingler and House on Haunted Hill, both in 59, Sardonicus and Homicidal, both in 61. Dark Old House and 13 Frightened Girls, both in 63. Nightwalker and Straightjacket, both in 64. I mean, this guy was just going, 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 going with these films. Well, I feel like this was kind of a transitional film because, you know, from Macabre, House on Haunted Hill, The Tingler, 13 Ghosts, those were all kind of, they had adult themes, but I think the audience was mainly kids. And the gimmicks were kind of geared toward the kids, you know, the tingler with the buzzing seats and House on Haunted Hill had the skeleton flying over the audience and and 13 Ghosts had the special glasses where you could see the ghosts or not see the ghosts if you're too scared. And Homicidal, it had a gimmick, but this is like, this is not a movie for kids. You know, I would no. I would imagine the kids going to see this. This was a whole different kind of William Castle movie and certainly inspired by, by Psycho and inspired by, I feel, William Castle's desire to kind of move away from the um, the gimmick type movies and into a more adult type of picture. So the later pictures like uh, Straight Jacket and Nightwalker, some of those are tr- he's trying to gear more toward the, the adult audience. But then you've got you know Zots and Thirteen Bright Girls, which are st- definitely still for the kiddies. But um, Homicidal it was was clearly capitalizing on the success of Psycho, which uh, you know there's a great story that um, a friend of William Castle's t- tells in the in the documentary about how um, he had this real high after making 13 Ghosts and, you know, everybody was loving the movie and it was a big hit. But then he, he left the, one of the a screening one night and he looked across the street at a theater that was playing Psycho and there was lines wrapped around the block. And he realized that William Cat, uh, that the, Alfred Hitchcock was employing some of the same techniques that William Castle had been using to get the audiences in. You know, in the case of Psycho, it was the... It was a gimmick that you weren't able to enter the theater after the movie started, which uh, I don't know that that happens too much now. But back in the back in the day, you'd go if you got into a movie an hour in, you would just sit down, watch the movie until the end, and just stay and watch it from the beginning and then leave where you came in. And and Alfred Hitchcock said, "No, we're not going. You're not going to be allowed to do that." And that got him a lot of press. And that was a gimmick, in the same way that uh, Bill Castle had gimmick. So I'm sure Homicidal was, I have no doubt Homicidal was, was a reaction to the success of Psycho with, in terms of the gimmick, in terms of the theme of the movie, uh, um, that now you are actually able to make a movie about uh, um, a, a guy dressing up as a girl or vice versa. Uh, and it was okay to now talk about these things, especially if uh, somebody was uh, running around and killing people the way they did in Psycho, the way Norman Bates did in Psycho. Yeah, that's the thing, too, is like some of the things that we've talked about are, are men being forced to dress as women or men identifying more with women you know even thinking like uh buffalo bill in uh silence of the lambs but 
to have a woman dressing as a man is again we're getting into really rare territory as far as what what we see in movies. I mean, we don't necessarily get that drag king kind of idea in films nearly as often as you know immediately my mind goes to dress to kill you know it's like we almost always are seeing men dressing as women and doing these killings or having gender problems and then killing but we're not seeing women dressing as men and doing killings nearly as often no like i said the only things that i can think of women dressing as men are related to trying to pass through a situation like a 12th night or as jeffrey brought up also yentl you know in some way it's not uh women dressing as men is not a, a end up leading to someone getting killed usually I mean, there's Victor Victoria with a man pretending to be a woman, pretending to be a man kind of thing. But a woman pretending to be a man is not a threat to the natural order of things. There's something kind of charming about it. But a a man dressing as a woman, that's the end of everything. And that's where you get into trouble. And that's where you start seeing, you know, the films like Dress to Kill, where, where there must be something deeply wrong with anyone, any man who would, you know, lower himself to dress like a woman or to even want to be a woman. That's the worst thing that you could possibly do in, in our society. Yeah, that whole idea of trying to to get out of your responsibilities as a man by being a woman and just adopting the trappings of the the weaker sex. I mean, gosh, you know, heaven forbid that uh, that actually happen. Well, it's d- deeply misogynistic. You know, I mean, I think a lot of the transphobia has to do with uh, with um, misogyny and and fear and the hatred of of women. You know, so. So that's that makes homicidal unique and kind of separate from the the transgender psycho killer that we've seen in, in a lot of other movies, Trust to Kill and Sounds of Lambs and other films. So you've talked a little bit about some of the gimmicks that we had in some of these other castle films, and sometimes I'm afraid that the gimmicks kind of overshadow the work when it comes to castle because these films are great. These films are remarkable, and I don't think that homicidal needed a gimmick at all in fact when it comes up i was laughing and i probably shouldn't have been laughing at this point but i mean it still works for me that the fright break that is inside of homicidal works as a nostalgia kind of thing but really i think it could be just cut out and play like a quote-unquote straight film without any problem. Now, were there other things? Which was the one where Castle was selling like life insurance or he had the, the coward's corner? What what movies were those? Well, it all started, Castle was a B contract director at, at Columbia, and he was making movie after movie after movie, but they didn't really have a personal stamp, and he was kind of an anonymous guy. But he wanted to break out of that, and he wanted to be known. So he um, ended up doing a film called Macabre, which was inspired by Diabolique. He saw the lines outside the theater for Diabolique, and he wanted to make a shocker like that, like a low-budget, black-and-white shocker. So he made a movie called Macabre, but because he had personally mortgaged his house and personally you know, had his, his own financial, finances were on the line, if the movie was not a success, he would be in big trouble. So what he decided to do was come up with a gimmick to ensure that the people would actually show up. So what he did was he took out a life insurance policy with Lloyd's of London, in case the audience died, if somebody died of fright during the movie, your beneficiary would collect $1,000, and he put it in all the ads, and he put it in all the trailers, and um, I don't believe anyone actually died um, as a result of it, but, but it would have been great publicity. And for all these years, I always thought that was kind of a put-on. Could he really have gotten a life insurance policy from Lloyd's of London? But when I was making the documentary, Spine Tingler, I was over at Terry Castle's house, his daughter, 
and we were looking through all the files, and we actually found the real life insurance policy from Lloyd's of London. So he, he actually did this. And then after Macabre, it was a huge hit, and he wanted to follow it up immediately after that, which he did with The House on Haunted Hill, where he came up with a gimmick called Emerjo, and Emerjo was a skeleton that would fly out on a wire over the audience uh, at a certain point in the movie. And after that, that was also a huge hit, and that, of course, he followed up uh, with The Tingler, where he installed electric buzzers under the seats that would be, go off at a certain point in the movie. 13 Ghosts, we mentioned, had um, special glasses where you could see the ghosts or not see the ghosts. So he was he was kind of getting typecast for these kinds of films, and I know that he wanted to move away from them. And Homicidal, he would come up with the gimmick before the plot of the movie. So my guess is that the idea of the gimmick for Homicidal, which was, there's actually two gimmicks in Homicidal. One was a certificate that you got upon uh, entering the theater was with, where you could uh, get your money back if you couldn't uh, stand to watch the shocking ending of the movie. But, and the shocking ending of the movie is the scene you're talking about where, where uh, the character is walking toward a closed door and behind that closed door is all sorts of mayhem and you hear William Castle's voice come on. This is the fright break. Hear that sound? It's the sound of a heartbeat. A frightened, terrified heart. Is it beating faster than your heart or slower? This heart is going to beat for another 25 seconds. To allow anyone to leave this theater who is too frightened to see the end of the picture. Ten seconds more, and we go into the house. It's now or never. Five, four, you're a brave audience. Two, one. And what it was, he called it the fright break. And the fright break was basically a clock that was going backwards. So that was the first gimmick. The, the sort of coup de, the, the coup, de, coup de gras of this gimmick was, was the coward's corner. And the coward's corner was, if you did decide to get your money back, you'd have to leave the theater... And some, some people say there were yellow lines leading up to the uh, exit. You, know, you were a chicken and you were yellow. And then you would walk up the, to out and you have to stand in the coward's corner, which is basically just a cardboard box, like a, a holding pen for all the cowards. And you have to stand in there. And as the audience came out, after the movie was over, they would see you in there. And they would be obviously be laughing at you and uh, deriding you for not you know, um, having the guts to see the end of the movie. If you are too frightened to stay to see the rest of the picture... You can present this certificate at the Coward's Corner and get your full admission price refunded. And that, that actually worked, and that was a sensational gimmick for, for William Castle. But before, the, they had some test screenings of it, and they, they showed it in Youngstown, Ohio. And uh, what happened was they showed the movie, and before the end of the movie, the entire audience got up and left, and they all wanted their money back. And Castle was shocked and horrified. How could this be? And it turns out that this audience bought tickets for the earlier show, sat, sat through the movie a second time, and then got up and left to try to get their money. <laughs> so he realized that the people of Youngstown, Ohio, were swindlers, and uh, they had to come up with a system of different colored tickets so that uh, nobody could, um, could uh, try to outsmart William Castle. The break there, it works, but at the same time, I think pulls modern viewers out of the film a little bit is the fact that outside of the opening, we don't hear him again. It's not like he's narrating throughout the entire film, and then it pops up at that point. 
And for me, I was just sort of like, today it just seems a little, you know, it's gimmicky. But well, it just yeah. seems, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. It, and, and I understand the reasons behind his gimmicks, but in this one, I was like, I wish it just would have played straight through. Like Mike was yeah. saying, you could have just cut it out. I have a feeling that they did do that. For They would probably had prints without the, uh, the gimmicks. I know for Mr. Sardonicus, there were... There, that was the, the film where you could vote uh, whether or not the villain lives or dies at the end of the movie by holding up a little thumb, a glow-in-the-dark thumb. You know, thumbs up, he, he dies. No, thumbs up, he lives. Thumb down, thumbs down, he dies. But he, Castle knew that nobody would vote for the villain to live, so they only shot one ending of the movie anyway. So when they show it on TV, and I think one of the DVD, uh, early DVD prints has a version without the uh, without the gimmick. So yeah, I would I agree with you, Rob. For audiences today who don't know about this, it's like, who is this guy suddenly coming on at the end of the movie and telling me that I can like leave my living room and get my money back. It's very, it's very confusing. But like I said, at that point, I think Castle was, was uh, starting to tire of the gimmicks. And he, if you look at the next films after Mr. Sardonicus, you know, straight jacket didn't have a gimmick or need a gimmick because he had uh, Joan Crawford and with Joan Crawford, you don't need a gimmick. Joan Crawford was, was the gimmick. gimmick. Well, all movie stars are gimmicks, right? When it comes to you, Jeffrey, you know, you made Spine Tingler, the William Castle story, but you were also doing a lot of extras for all these DVD re-releases of Castle's films. Which came first? Well, when I uh, moved to L.A., my goal, that was in about 1995, my, my goal and, and desire was to make the William Castle documentary, but I had no real way to do it. I, I had just moved here. It was, uh, it was many years ago, and uh, I thought, well, I'll just call Columbia Pictures. And I'll pitch them the documentary because they owned all the William Castle movies. And that, um, I was a little bit naive because studios don't generally do that. But when I went to Columbia or Sony to pitch the idea, I met a guy there named Mike Stratford. And Mike Stratford was hired to run this new division of a new format, DVD. And this was in like 98, 99. And they were actually looking for, they were hiring independent producers to, to do add, what they called added value content for the DVDs to convince everyone to get rid of their VHSs and buy this new format. So he ended up hiring me to produce the DVD extras for The Tingler and Night of the Living Dead, the Tom Savini version, back in 1999. So even though I didn't, they didn't give me the, the green light, let's say, to make a feature documentary, they hired me to do The Tingler featurette, which we did. And then they hired me to do, uh, I think, four or five other ones in the years after. So I did featurettes for Homicidal and 13 Ghosts and Straight Jacket and uh, Mr. Sardonicus. But I always had it in my mind that I wanted to do the feature. So I just started um, shooting interviews on my own over the course of about, uh, it took about 10 years to do it. And then when I finally had enough interviews, uh, I asked Sony if they would let me uh, have all of the materials that I shot for the DVD. They, they, they were very gracious and they let me have all the interviews that I shot. And I edited the movie together as a feature called Spine Tingler. We made the film and we got it into the AFI Fest back in 2007. And we premiered it there. That was our world premiere. And it was a big success. I, I uh, it won the Audience Award at that festival. And I remember we we needed to have some ballyhoo for that film because it's about William Castle, the greatest showman. So what I decided to do was I got a, a replica of the Tingler. And uh, both myself and Terry Castle, Bill's daughter, walked around the premiere opening night with a Tingler on our back. And I was walking the red carpet with a Tingler on the same red carpet that Tom Cruise was on for, um, what was that movie he did, Lions and Lambs? Lions for Lambs, the one with Meryl Streep years ago. 
And yeah. so he was about 20 feet away from me, and all the reporters were talking to me. <laughs> I'm like, why do I have this thing on my back? And it was it was wild, and it just proved, you know, this 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 hunk of plastic that I had, this replica of the Tingler, got us a lot of attention, and uh, it really helped. So that's how the the film Spine Tingler came about, and then Sony ended up uh, letting me use all the clips from all the films. They were they were really gracious about the whole thing, and they ended up um, licensing the documentary and put it on their box set, the William Castle box set, which is, I think it's out of print now, but the, the documentary is still available in a variety of ways. So we've essentially just given the audience at home a fright break here, because we are now need to dive into the third act of the film. I gotta say, it's so effective. You know, I talked about all of those shadows, and it's just this the air is thick with shadows as Miriam Webster, <laughs> sorry, yeah. Yeah. as she walks through this house and is trying to figure out what's going on, and we hear that tapping of Helga's doorknob on the the uh, wheelchair, and Helga coming down the stairs in this mechanical um, device, the same kind of thing that we saw in, in Gremlins and other places. And which, of course, the stairway, I'm immediately thinking, you know, in the earlier scene where uh, Emily almost kills Helga on the stairway, I'm thinking of uh, Arbogast in Psycho, you know, and there's even some good, like, kind of moving in, zooming in kind of thing. Not that zoom in, uh, pull out thing that we get with Arbogast, but there's some still uh, effective camera work here. And I do have to say that the revelation of Helga being decapitated really did put the whammy on me. I was so shocked when we see the shadow of her head roll off of her shoulders. It really... If I uh, had been in an audience, I might have squealed. I think I did squeal, actually, when that head fell off. What an audience. What a moment for the audience. Because that's... You didn't see that kind of thing. You really did not see that kind of thing in a mainstream, I don't know if you'd call this mainstream, but in a Hollywood movie. I mean, Herschel Gordon-Lewis was doing that kind of thing on a very low budget for drive-ins, but that was that was way out there. I mean, this was a this was a mainstream kind of film. And that's where I, you know, noted the Tales from the Crypt kind of thing, because I could see a panel like that in those comics at the time, those horror comics that were around a few years before in the late 50s and caused all those you know, congressional hearings and all that nonsense. So I just remember like images like that, the whole shadow and sort of like the head falling off and all of that being in those comics. So I like, it just really has that kind of feel. It has that, that, that edge to it. That's a little bit, like you were saying, that's not mainstream. Like Hitchcock wouldn't have put that in one of his films. And the revelation of Emily into Warren, I thought was great. And I was glad that she did, you know, put those teeth in or take the teeth out and just uh, kind of, uh, she put teeth in, that's what it was, to um, kind of further that thing. Because really, other than the hair and the dubbed-in voice, there wasn't a whole lot of difference. I mean, there wasn't, you know, it was a good transformation as far as, you know, she didn't, we didn't have to believe that she was putting on, you know, tons of makeup or anything like that to transform from the one character to a to another because she could do it like that and so it was great to see how the transformation happened also it's it helps that that actress is not someone that anyone had ever heard of or had ever seen in any other movies i mean she's credited as gene arliss 
in Homicidal. And I did see some promotional photos that Gene Arliss took with, with uh, William Castle. There's a great photo that's in Spine Tingler of them uh, uh, with Hitchcock's head on like a Thanksgiving dinner table. And they're like carving up Hitchcock's head, which is hilarious. And Gene Arliss is dressed as a witch. And it was, it's just wild. And I've seen some great photos. I don't know where they would have run because it would give away the ending. But there's photos I have of Gene Arliss getting her hair cut. You know, as a, her, a man's haircut. But Jean Arliss was actually Joan Marshall, who was, um, that was her real name. And she was a working actress. She actually played Lily Munster in the pilot episode of The Munsters that she didn't end up pl- end up playing Lily. But if you can find the, the pilot episode, the rest of the cast, like Al Lewis is in it and Fred Gwynn, but it's Jean Arliss, I'm rather Joan Marshall playing Lily. And she was married to Hal Ashby. And that's about all I know about her. I'm kind of fascinated with who Joan Marshall really was, because she was clearly a, a, a Hollywood fixture. Right. Yeah, and uh, it's funny that you say Hal Ashby, because I noticed that she was in Shampoo. And I'm like, oh, That's okay. right. She's in Shampoo. That's right. I forgot about that. It, obviously, it's clever to call her Jean rather than Joan, because then you have the, you know, the more transitory name. You know, it's not G-E-N-E, but, you know, you could still possibly get that. You know, of course, it always reminds me of the uh, It's Pat sketches from saturday night live where it's all of those names where you can't really tell if it's a man or a woman so hearing gene you're like yeah is this gene harlow or gene hackman (laughs) gene gene the dancing machine and i wonder how much william castle had to do with that you know the creation of the the gene arliss persona or you know and and what the press was because this was a mystery this was a mystery person and then the public didn't know anything about her God, I can't even imagine what his press packs must have looked like back in the day. Because you know, when we were doing Black Cat a few weeks ago, and uh, Ed Pettit was reading off some of the ideas from the press materials for you know, bring the kids to the movie and have them you know draw their favorite blah blah blah, and and it's just like the ideas that Castle must have had in order to pr- help promote a movie in a uh, venue must have just been incredible, and they must just have been outrageous. Yeah, we found photos uh, in Sony's archives of a guy walking around um, outside of the theater with, with painted yellow with like a sandwich board saying, you know, come see Homicidal. There actually were nurses uh, in, in at the theater. I mean, the, the nurses at the theater were famous, famously used in Macabre because he would have the nurses pass out the life insurance policy. And in... Um, Homicidal, I've seen pictures of nurses in the lobby taking people's blood pressure and making sure that they're not too uh, faint of heart to, to see the movie. So, yeah, he, he, pulled up, he pulled out all the stops for Homicidal because, there's like, like I said, there was multiple gimmicks. There's the certificate that you get when you walk in that you get your money back, and then there's also the, the coward's corner, the fright break. So that may, actually there's three gimmicks. You actually get to take home something home with you, which is always great. You had the, uh, and you had the fright break, and you had the coward's corner. So we made some comparisons between Homicidal and Psycho, and obviously there are many visual references going on throughout this, and the whole idea of the transgenderism and the way that Norman, when he was threatened, would become the mother character or mother figure. And I've always said that, and I don't know of a better way where you could actually handle this, but I've always said that the end of Psycho is pretty ham-fisted when it comes to the psychiatrist explaining away Norman's problems. And we get almost 
uh, beat per beat at a, to a point that same kind of thing in this film where we get the explanation of the Emily and Warren. But I do have to say that we've already gotten a lot of things established when it comes to Emily being Warren or vice versa. So it's not as hammy to me it just feels like this guy's kind of explaining it more to the people in the room than necessarily explaining it all to the audience though in effect he is explaining it to the audience as well well if you feel that uh, that last scene in psycho was a detriment and homicidal is an improvement on that then you you wouldn't be the only one because time magazine when they reviewed homicidal they actually said it was better than psycho <laughs> when, when they did their yearly roundup of the movies of the year so uh, that must have been such a thrill for William Castle, uh, because he was always trying to, he was always following Hitchcock's career, and they they did, like I said, have a friendly rivalry. So to be to have a, a the, the, you know the, the magazine of note say that his movie was better than Hitchcock's, that he must have been over the moon about that. Did Castle do those kind of promo trailers as well as the um, you know the introductions to his films? Yeah, Homicidal has one uh, where he explains the. The bright break and explains the certificate and the coward's corner and he's he's in all the trailers, he's in many of the movies, uh, TV spots and radio spots and he was all over the country barnstorming the country with these movies because a movie like Homicidal wouldn't have opened you know all over the country at once it would have opened city by city by city and he would have been there in person to ballyhoo the movie. I was curious because one of the most famous things for me when it comes to Psycho, yes, there's the poster with Hitchcock pointing at his watch about the 20 minutes late that you talked about earlier, but also that promo film that was shot for Psycho where he goes through and he talks about the toilet and all these things. I'll tell you, there's a very important clue was found here. Down there. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here very slowly. Of course, the shower was on, there was no sound. And, uh... Which, to me, just felt like he must have been on set of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and said, okay, guys, you know, roll, roll camera. Let's do this promo for Psycho kind of thing. And it... it it seems to me that he didn't necessarily do that for other things. There wasn't a little promo for Stage Fright, as far as I know, or Shadow of a Doubt. So I'll have to go back and make sure that that's really the case. But it, it seems like Psycho was an exception to the way that Hitchcock was presenting these things. Haha. <laughs> but and that does feel to me like he was aping Castle a little bit. Well, certainly, and just even the choice to do Psycho. Because he was doing these big, glossy you know, color movies in this division. And to do Psycho, it was a gritty, low-budget horror film with shocking subject matter shot by his TV crew. And that was these were the kinds of movies that, that Bill Castle was doing. So I'm sure, and Hitchcock was a businessman and a great showman as well. So I'm sure that he saw what Castle was doing and saw an opportunity to sort of get into that market in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the drive-in market or the, the, the Roger Corman-type films or the William Castle-type films. I love the promo film that Bill Castle made in the Youngstown, Ohio. This is the city of the swindlers who uh, uh-huh. sat through. But uh, I watched this thing so many times, and it's so hilarious because he uh, he's talking to the, the the patrons, his his audience, and there's this one moment where it's a couple of guys saying, "Mr. Castle, we just saw your movie, and 
we think, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's going to have to go a long way to top this one. You know, <laughs> it's clear that they, they've been coached. <laughs> and then there's a moment where somebody almost gives away the ending, the shocking ending, and William Castle is like, oh, no, 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 you know, don't give away the ending. And in, in one point in this promo, he, he turns to the camera and says, don't give away the ending of, uh, of Homicidal or I will kill you. <laughs> don't reveal the ending of Homicidal to your friends or they will kill you. If they don't, I will. You could probably find that on, on the YouTube and watch it because it's, it's so entertaining. And it's also uh, really touching to see this kind of ballyhoo because it's, it's like the circus was coming to town. You know, when Castle would come to your town, this is a real Hollywood director coming to town and interacting with the people. And he really enjoyed that part of the process. He would go and stand in the back of the theater and hear the reactions and, and make sure the films were working the way they were supposed to be working. He had personal relationships with the exhibitors, the theater owners, even the ushers, you know, and the people who worked in the theaters. He, he knew them by, by their names. And I, I, you don't really see that kind of thing today. You definitely don't see that kind of thing today. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back after a few brief messages. Hey, it's the Schwarzenegger. I need your clothes, your boots, and your podcast device. Why? Because this October, on the Films and Swearing Movie Podcast, the boys will be reviewing all five Terminator movies. Yes, all five. Uh, even Rise of the Machines. Talk to the hand and search Films and Swearing on your podcast apps, iTunes, Skynet, and Stitcher Radio, or visit filmsandswearing.com. If not, consider it a divorce. That's fucking illegal. Fuck you, asshole. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B O O T H at adamandeve.com. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film, and it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, or you're thinking about 
about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, <laughs> tune in outside the cinema, baby. You know, find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. He's homicidal. talking about homicidal with jeffrey schwartz this week jeff you know you've done a decent amount of documentaries you've done all these dvd extras and uh, we've talked to you before about a couple of the the films that you've done obviously i am divine and the latest which uh, did play in town here in detroit and sadly could not make it out tab hunter confidential well, well I, hopefully we'll be back we're tab hunter confidential is still on the festival circuit but we're gearing up for a multi-city theatrical release and actually there's some ballyhoo going on with this release because tab hunter will be appearing in person at many of these screenings in uh, new york los angeles san francisco all over the country we, we you can you can find out where we're playing on our our website tabhunterconfidential.com and uh, also our facebook page and we talked a little bit with you when you were in the process of putting this together but can you kind of give us the background on it uh, why you decided tab hunter I met Tab Hunter when we were making I Am Divine, and I interviewed Tab and his partner, Alan Glasser, because they, uh, Tab obviously starred with uh, Divine in Polyester, and Alan and Tab produced Divine's movie, Lust in the Dust. So I got to know them both, and I had read Tab's fantastic autobiography about 10 years ago, and I just sort of started talking to them about the documentary, doing a documentary on, on his life. And it turns out they were already thinking about that and were thinking about who might be the right person to direct it. And we all started working together. That was about six and a half years ago by now. The film took about six years to, to make. And I just uh, thought it would, uh, was a great opportunity to hear from, basically from the horse's mouth, about what it was like to be a matinee idol, uh, one of the last of the studio contract players, one of the last of the, of the movie stars of the golden age in the 50s. And also that he was living a double life. He was a gay man, but he was being sold to the American public as God's gift to women. And what was that like, you know, in, a, in an extremely repressive, homophobic time? Uh, and so we, I, I think that we got, we got the answers to all those questions in the film. I think that in a way, when you look at him and, and maybe, I guess, the, the image of Rock Hudson sort of in the similar era, that there were these gay men who had to... Uh, not be out, and they were seen as you were saying, God's a gift to women. So, you know, not to give it all away, but what did he see as those conflicts in himself? How how hard was it to deal with those issues for himself? Well, there's the personal side of things, and then there's the professional side of things. In terms of the the person, I mean, this is the '50s, and it was literally impossible to be openly gay. You know, there were you know, very, very uh, dire circumstances for anybody who would dare to, you know, speak of the, even speak of this. In Hollywood, it was a little easier. You could be, you could be openly gay in Hollywood if you worked behind the scenes. There certainly weren't any openly gay actors or actresses. It was poison to a career and to a life, to be honest. 
but Tab, on a personal level, he was uh, raised Roman Catholic. Uh, he was uh, had a very strict mother. He went to Catholic school. He was taught by nuns, and he was growing up at a time where being gay was was um, was just not discussed. But you also knew that it was it was wrong. Uh, it was sinful. It was illegal to be gay. He had to come to terms with that, um, and it took him a long time to, to come to terms with that. And he was also living in the public eye, uh, and he considered marriage. You know, there were actors who did, uh, they used to call them lavender marriages, uh, either where the, the one that there was a gay man marrying a woman or a gay man marrying a lesbian. Tab uh, did see other actors do this. Rock Hudson did it. He married his agent's secretary, Henry Wilson, who, by the way, was also Tab Hunter's agent. They, Rock and Tab had the same agent. And Tab um, had a relationship with a woman, one of his co-stars, that he did consider marrying. But he, he had um, kind of a code of honor and uh, he he didn't want to have a relationship based on lies, you know. So he decided he wouldn't um, get married to a woman. And in fact, he he did have a relationship with Tony Perkins for several years. That that was a very important relationship in his life, among other relationships. But you know, the idea that these two major major stars, and they were sort of at the peak of their stardom when they were when they were seeing each other, you know. But they had to go out. If they would go out together, they would go on double dates or they would bring a beard. And we interviewed one of the beards in the movie who was very happy to be a beard because she had a great time hanging out with the boys and going out to nightclubs. But if they would go out together, they, Tony would sometimes wear a disguise. You know, he'd wear a long coat and a, and a baseball cap. And uh, or they would, if they would go to the movies together, they would go separately and, and, and sort of meet up when the movie started. This is, they had to sort of live very um, circumspect lives. You know, but now it's decades and decades later, and, and Tab's come full circle with this. He's he's learned to accept himself. You know, I think about that era of the tabloid journalist, and it's not to say that you know, with our TMZ world and the online and everything that we have now, but it seemed a little bit more different back then in terms of they were looking for those scoops, they were trying to out people, the old you know, confidential magazine type things. Did he ever have to run into that sort of aspect when he was in his heyday, when he was the contract player? The mainstream movie magazines and the mainstream columnists like Hedda Hopper or Luella Parsons, I mean, they were all part of the movie industry and they wouldn't have, they would never publish a, a negative story about a star because then they wouldn't have access to that star. And the studios controlled the actors uh, very tightly, and they also controlled the press. So there was sort of a conspiracy of silence about, certainly about the gay issue. I mean, no no columnist would ever dream of, of bringing that up. But then sometimes you would see sort of, if you read between the lines, you know, somebody referred to as a bachelor or something like that. But then there were the other magazines like Confidential, and that was sort of a new breed of tabloid journalism that came along. Confidential magazine was definitely not in the studio's pocket. And they were, they were their stories always had sort of a grain of truth in them, but they were highly exaggerated. So Tab, uh, when he was just starting out as an actor, he was arrested in a gay, at a gay party very early on, before he was very well-known, before he was well-known at all. And it was illegal for gay people to congregate uh, together at a party, even, even in a private home. So he was arrested. He was bailed out. Um, it was still on his record, but it was under his old name of uh, Art Galeen. And years later, when he... Um, was going to leave his agent, Henry Wilson, Henry retaliated by releasing information, this information to Confidential Magazine, because Confidential was going to publish a story about Rock Hudson, who was also a client. So Henry kind of threw Tab under the bus, gave them this information, and, and Confidential published a story about Tab being arrested, and they, they said it was in a, a limp-wristed pajama party. 
which is, you know, everyone knows what that means. But they never came out and outed him, but, you know, it was clear what that meant. But you know, weirdly, that didn't really affect his career. Tad thought it was the end of the world at the time. But Confidential wasn't really taken very seriously, and they didn't have the kind of readership that one of the more mainstream magazines, like a photo play, uh, or you know, Hedda Hopper's column or Luella Parsons' column would have. So it's it's a, it's fascinating to to look back at that time where um, you know the the actors were products, and the tab tab hunter was sort of a character that was created, it was a persona that was created by the studios to sell tickets and to sell magazines. He was probably more famous for. The magazine covers then, and and his also his hit rock and roll singles, than he was for the movies he was making. For you in doing the film Tab Hunter Confidential, what was something for yourself that that you came to realize about this person who maybe you only knew from you know the films he was in, or or um, even before you read the book in some way? You know, I was very um, touched by. I mentioned this sort of code of honor that he has, and you know, he's a person of faith. He's was like I said, raised Roman Catholic, and he did leave the church for many years because of the, their condemnation of him. He did actually confess to a priest when he was young, and he was having these feelings for men, and he got a very negative reaction, and, and kind of terrified him. And he was away from the church for decades. So, but he did come back to the church, and it was interesting. I'm not a. I don't share those those beliefs. I'm not a, a person of faith the way Tab is. But I really respect his um, his dedication to the church because he found a way to take what he needs from it. He rejects all the dogma and the condemnation, and he just has like a personal spiritual relationship with with God, or you know, however he cho- chooses to d- define it, I guess. And so, and that I, I found really touching and very real. He goes to church every week. You know, he's he's kind of what you see is what you get with him. And uh, I thought it was just a, a really fascinating way to look at the closet. And particularly the 1950s, where nothing is what it seemed. Every there was something going on. It was definitely the the, the blue velvet David Lynch, you know, uh, um, shiny happy services. But behind it, there's a lot more going on that people just didn't either didn't know about, chose to or chose to uh, to ignore. Um, and uh, now we could look at that time with a whole uh, a whole new perspective. You know, one of the things that amazes me is looking at. Like the the whole idea of like if you are outed in this time, it is just career death kind of thing. And then comparing that to something like um, Neil Patrick Harris a few years ago being outed, and he's just like, "Yep, that's me. This is who I am." Where do you see there? It, it was there a particular moment for you where you saw actors who were being outed or actors who were coming out that being okay versus this is potential career death. Like I'm looking at like a Rupert Everett where it's just like, once he came out, the roles seem to dry up for him. Whereas Neil Patrick Harris has had untold success or like a, you know, Ellen DeGeneres, you know, it was, that was such a scandal at the time when she came out, but now it's like Ellen page comes out. No big deal. Or at least that's the way I perceive it. Is it me getting older, or was there kind of a sea change when it comes to the acceptability of of your favorite matinee idols being gay? Well, I don't know that we have any matinee idols who are out. I mean, I think we do have we have comedians, we have talk show hosts, we have character actors, but we don't have leading men, leading women that are out. And although it is a lot. Um, um, 
it's you actually can come out in a career and still maintain your career. Usually, the people who come out either have been out from the beginning. Like Rupert Everett was always out. It wasn't like he made a big pronouncement. He was just always out. And then he got a role in the big Julia Roberts movie, and then the career he kept working, but he didn't turn into a big movie star like people thought he might. And some people attributed that to him, you know, being openly gay. Um, but but now. Uh, you know, you. I think the the way a lot of the the leading men handle rumors is saying, "Well, well, I know I finally made it if I, there's a rumor about me." You know, but um, I don't. We don't have a. An, it's still a business, and uh, it's still considered a detriment to a career. There are plenty of actors who would like to be out who are told they shouldn't be out by their management, and um, I, I understand that. I mean, there's. It's hard enough to maintain a career as an actor or or an actress in Hollywood without that perceived. Um, uh, without that perceived problem being held against you, you know? So I guess it remains to be seen. I, I think that actually the world is ready for an openly gay movie star, but we now are in a global market of movies, and movies are made for the entire world, and there are plenty of places in the world where they might not even book that film. You know, I'm not saying he's gay, but let's say George Clooney came out tomorrow, and you were trying to sell his movie to Saudi Arabia, you might have a problem doing that. So it's a very interesting time, but it's it's certainly not a career suicide to come out of the closet the way it would have been. And nobody would have dreamed of doing that in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s. Yeah, people started doing that. Um, but uh, Lily Tomlin was actually asked to come out early in her career, in probably the mid-70s, by Time magazine. And she, she declined. You know, she, she would have been the first. If she had done that, she would have been the first sort of mainstream, comp, you know, she was sort of a movie star at that time. To come out, she didn't do it, and I don't think the world would have been ready for it at that point. It certainly would have hurt her career then. Now she can do it, and um, nobody thinks twice about it. I heard a rumor, and I don't know if you can confirm or deny this, but I once heard that Paul Lind was gay. Is that true? Oh, couldn't possibly be. Okay. Then next, you're going to tell me Liberace was. Ooh, yeah. No, I don't think so. I think he sued. People in one when they accused him of being gay. That's the gay. other thing, you know. Paul Lynn was never out of the closet. Liberace never came out of the closet. You know, all these sort of big queens that we know about never came out. And you could be as outrageous as you as you as you wanted to be and be a big queen like Liberace. But the minute you actually said it, it would be over. You know. And he, like, you're right. He did actually sue a newspaper for insinuating that that he was gay, and he won. And um, that was just the, that was those were just the times. So I don't know. I mean, Richard Simmons. I don't know what his inclinations are, but he he's not out. And he reminds me a little bit of the Paul Lins and the Liberace because he can be as outrageous as he wants to be, but he just won't actually say the words. So speaking of outrageous, or shall we say fabulous? Can you tell us a little bit about the fabulous Alan Carr, your new project? Oh yeah, thanks for asking. It's a, a new film about Alan Carr who was. Famous as a, a, a talent manager, a, a party thrower. He threw these fabulous Hollywood parties and a movie producer. And he produced famously Grease and Can't Stop the Music and La Caja Faux on Broadway. And he's also responsible for the, the disastrous 1989 Academy Awards, the one that's famous for Snow White appearing and singing a duet with Rob Lowe, singing Proud Mary with Rob Lowe. And considered you know, by many people the, the, the worst Oscars ever. I don't happen to agree with that, but... But anyway, he was a, a very flamboyant, larger-than-life movie producer personality that uh, has had a, had a fascinating life, and uh, he's no longer with us. But there's a lot of people around who worked with him, and uh, he he was he he was a, a very a big um, 
uh, presence in Hollywood in the 60s, 70s, and the, into the 80s, and into the 90s, too, actually. So where are you at with this project? We just st- we just filmed our first interview a couple of weeks ago with Marlo Thomas, who was an early client of, of uh, Cars. And we are heading to Chicago next week to start filming. And uh, I hope by this time next year, we'll uh, have a finished movie. We'll see. You'll have to let us know how it is tracking down all the original Village Well, I've been involved. talking to a lot of them. Yeah, I actually just, I talked to, uh, I've been in touch with the cowboy and, and uh, the cowboy and the Indian. And uh, there's only a, a, a few of the original lineup who are still around. But I'm hoping they'll all be in the film. There's lots of wild stories about the making of Can't Stop the Music, Nancy Walker's directorial debut. And actually going to be watching that movie in about an hour here for my birthday party. We're, we're having a little uh, Can't Stop the Music fiesta here at the Shea Wars. Awesome. You know, if you get in with the Indian, you basically have the rest of the village people <laughs> because not too many people realize that it was the Indian who was pulling the strings the whole time. Well, he was the one that started it all, really, because the producers of the village people were out clubbing one night and they saw the, the Indian who uh, was... Uh, was a go-go dancer and he was dancing on a bar and they looked around this bar and they saw all these people dressed up as cops and uh leather guys and indians and uh construction workers and they thought hmm interesting <laughs> i think we might have something here that's felipe rose is the is the indian and yes he does have he a name, name. Like... <laughs> and he has a name and he's in that they're all in and can't stop the music is sort of a fictionalized version of the, the the creation of the village people and that was alan carr's idea he saw the village people performing and he's he went to see them backstage, and he says, I just came up with a movie idea for you. And he put that whole package together, and it was his follow-up to Grease, which was the biggest movie musical of all time. And he thought, wow, how could you go wrong with the village people? Well, when they started making the movie, they were disco was king, and the village people were really popular. By the time the movie came out, there was a huge backlash against disco. There was that famous disco demolition derby. Uh, and was I think it was in Detroit. I have to double-check that. But it was a... It was a um, a radio DJ who did a stunt where people would bring their disco albums to the baseball field and they would they would set them on fire and blow them up and and that was sort of the the disco sucks the end, the beginning of the disco sucks era and when by the time Can't Stop the Music came out the disco bash, backlash was in full full swing and the movie completely bombed. I don't want to um, uh, you know disparage the people of chicago but that was actually uh an event that took place in kaminsky park in chicago it was chicago okay good good thank good you know the thing that's interesting about the whole disco sucks thing is when you look at who was interested in disco it seems like it's built upon this whole uh once again i guess getting into um anti-gay and also uh, race to a certain extent because it was obviously a music that appealed to gay community, black community, Latino community. Um, and it seemed that rock and roll was the uh, the place of the, the white man. And I guess they weren't too happy with being knocked off the charts for a while or something. Yeah, I think you're totally right about that. It was certainly was a homophobic uh, response and there was probably some racism in there too, for sure. Hey, if you're going to go homophobia, why not do racism, too? Roll it all up into one burrito. There you go. Yeah, and I've seen the footage of this disco demolition, and it's like a Nazi rally. It's scary. I mean, the people are running out onto the field and blowing up their records and chanting horrible things. And and um, it's a little frightening, to be honest. I will say that there was a Detroit connection, though. It was actually this 
took place between a uh, doubleheader of the White Sox and the Tigers. So there were Detroiters present. Aha. Well, I hope they didn't participate in the, the, the destroying of, uh, of Donna Summer's records. If Lou Whitaker was there, I'm sure that he stayed out of the fray. One would hope. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. You are Liza, aren't you? Yes. My name is Emily. I've been looking for you. Everybody in this hotel disappeared. Every last person. A painter called Spike, who lived here, closeted in his room, had found a key. Tell me, with all those accidents, you think you'll um, give it up now? I couldn't do that if I wanted to. Well, I won't give in. That's right, we're back next week with another entry in our spooktacular Shocktober series. It's the Beyond with our special guest co-host, Troy Howarth, to talk about director Lucio Fulci. Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Jeffrey Schwartz. And Jeffrey, where is the best place for people to keep up with you and your upcoming release of Tab Hunter Confidential and all the stuff with uh, the fabulous Alan Carr? Well, Tab Hunter Confidential, they can uh, check out our website, tabhunterconfidential.com. You can watch our trailer, see where we're screening. Uh, I have a website, uh, jeffrey-schwarz.com, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. Don't forget the dash in the middle. Uh, and um, Fabulous Alan Carr, uh, we, haven't, we, we have a Facebook page set up, and I've just started uh, sending out some updates on the film. So people can, uh, can look for that. Well, cool. We will definitely be linked to all those places over at our website, which also also has a dash, projection-booth.com. Thanks to everybody for listening to this show. Thanks again, Jeffrey, for coming on. You know, We've got a lot of great support lately with our recent entree into the world of Patreon. If you want to show your support, head on over to patreon.com slash projectionbooth. It's just one more way that you can help us take over the world. That was fun. Oh, my face.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.